Hey, everybody. I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kai Rizdal. Thanks for joining us, everybody, on this Tuesday, the 20th of February. One show, one topic is what we do on Tuesdays. Today, we're going to do NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, for those of you unfamiliar. It's a 75-ish or so uh, military year-old uh, military alliance that um, uh, has been in the news of late. Thank you to the former president. Um, and also, uh, not coincidentally, sort of many of the things that are going on over in Europe. Anyway, we're going we're gonna to talk about that today. Yeah, I mean, Trump made these comments saying, you know, that he wouldn't mind uh, changing up the way things go in NATO. And this has been dominating discussions, uh, including at this big international security conference that happened in Munich over the weekend. People were talking about the U.S.'s possible withdrawal from NATO. Um, But we want to take a little bit of a step back and look at how NATO is structured, how it works, why it's so crucial right now. So here to make us smart about all of this is Kathleen McInnes. She's a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So why was NATO originally established and and talk us through how it came about? So at the end of World War II, uh, the leaders of um, the United States and Europe were sort of looking around at different security arrangements and, and noticing that the Soviet Union was becoming a more belligerent actor, to put it mildly. So they started establishing this, this North Atlantic Treaty Organization to um, aggregate military capabilities and to start holding the line against um, an aggressive and expansionist Soviet Union. I mean, the the, the tagline um, for a lot of NATO's lifespan was that uh, NATO is founded to um, keep the Americans in, the, the Russians out, and the Germans down. <laughs> Just historically explain that, because maybe not everybody gets it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. So we, yeah. Um, the the idea being that we the Europeans needed the United States to remain engaged in Europe, and so having a treaty organization like NATO would help do that. Um, also, that um, Germany was a belligerent, a major belligerent mm-hmm. in World War II, to put it mildly. And so <laughs> to um, to ensure that Europe would remain peaceful, the idea was that um, having an American presence, having that allied presence would, would help with the reintegration of Germany into the European um, mm-hmm. security and economic architectures. So so the Soviet Union goes away at the end of the Cold War, 89, 90, 91, um, and yet mm-hmm. NATO endures. And, and, you know, sitting where we are now in, in uh, the, the North Atlantic and European security situations, we have it. It's a good thing it did. But the question is, mm-hmm. my question is, how and why did it stick around for those 20-ish years? Mm. Well, that's a great question, and that, frankly, it's been one that's that's been on top of mind for a lot of you know policy analysts and scholars. But you know, if you don't have the Soviet threat, what right. what is the purpose of this organization? Well, um, it's after the end of the Cold War, you um, had this sort of moment of existential crisis, you could say, uh, where NATO was trying to figure out what its purpose yeah. was, and then all of a sudden, the Balkans happened, mm. yeah. and NATO realized, hang on a second. Um, hmm. we need Europe to be at peace. And, you, you know, having the Balkan crisis there, like NATO can play a powerful role 
in um, resolving this crisis, uh, bringing some stability. And so um, NATO decided to, they, it was called going out of area or out of business, going out of NATO's territories. Because again, over the course of NATO's lifespan up to that point, NATO had been p- preparing for uh, a, a, a territorial conflict, an invasion of Europe itself. Well, now mm-hmm. the idea was, hang on a second, NATO can be a force for good globally. And we could start in Europe's backyard by helping promote stability in the Balkans. We're going to go out of area or out of business. Fast forward a couple of years and you get to Afghanistan. You know, NATO was, um, Article 5 is um, the, the, the bit of the NATO treaty that people like to talk about the most, which is the bit of the treaty that says, you know, an attack on one is an attack mm. on all. Well, September 11th, 2001 happens and NATO invokes Article 5. It says, you know what? That terrorist attack against the United States was a terror attack on all of us. And we need to come together and respond. That, you know, fast forward a few more years and, and NATO is heavily involved in Afghanistan. So it's it has done so many things um, in terms of operations, but also things, uh, counter-piracy in the Mediterranean and other places. Um, it's it's continued to reinvent itself and 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 discover new missions because certainly the the global security agenda isn't um, shrinking and NATO's hmm. been able to find a role. Talk a little bit more about Article Five because as you mentioned, the United States is kind of very famously the one member of NATO that has used this uh, right in under the treaty, and it's also the one that seems to get the most criticism, particularly from former President Trump. Sure. So the idea is that, as I said earlier, um, it's it, an attack on one ally is an attack on all. And where the debate really starts to get underway is like, is NATO, re- frankly, writing, you know, strategic checks that it can't cash? Does it actually have the military capabilities needed to be able to deter and def- um, Russia, defend against uh, Russian aggression? Um, to do the kinds of expeditionary operations that it says it wants to do. Um, so do, can 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 the alliance really back up its words with with real military capability? and And so when people have asked that question, they tend to look at what's called the two percent target. So what this is is in twenty fourteen, NATO allies said, you know what? Actually, at the end of the Cold War, we stopped spending enough on defense. Um, we were doing other things. Um, we, we were, it was called the peace dividend. We, d- we don't need to spend as much on the military because we're not trying to repel a Soviet threat. So we're going to take that money and we're going to put it elsewhere. But at, in about 2014, people realized, actually, it's gone a bit too far. So w- what we're going to do is by 2024, we're going to pledge to spend 2%, at least 2% of our gross domestic product on defense. And allies didn't really meet it. And, and 18 allies um, this year are projected to meet it, but so it's gotten better. But is there enough there there to to be able to back up alliance commitments? That's the question. Well, so two things. Number one, do me a favor, would you, and just debunk for anybody who doesn't already know it, the idea that there's this fund that President, former President Trump keeps talking about that NATO allies are not paying into, right? There's no bank account labeled NATO that <laughs> no. everybody pays into, right? Actually, actually as, as a nerdery kind of point, there is a small account, but that's not what they're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's basically, it's like, uh, like a, a small fund to, uh, to, um, to cover the cost right. of the headquarters. What, what, right. what, what we're talking about with 2% is actually like, what NATO nations are spending on their own militaries. There's no, like, cash that they're sending to the U.S. to, to you know, 
um, bankroll their, you know, the U.S. presence there. That that doesn't happen. It doesn't make sense. Right. So, look, if you given uh, what former President Trump has been saying about Article five, which is, in essence, uh, he's not interested and that the Russians mm. can do whatever the hell they want. That's a quote. Um, if you're an American ally right now, um, do you have any faith in American constancy in this? Mm. <laughs> that is the like billion dollar question right now. Um, I think it's it, talking to friends over in Europe. It's hard for them to maintain the faith. I mean, not just because of what uh, former President Trump has been saying about, you know, letting Russia, as you said, do whatever the hell it wants. That is, by the way, an absolutely terrifying world to live in. Mm -hmm. Russia doing whatever the hell it wants. I mean, when you see what Russia has done in terms of the war crimes in Ukraine and thinking about that expanding elsewhere, terrifying stuff. Putting that aside, um, the real question, and I, I think it, a more of more deep concern is, what if Trump and his point of view is not an aberration anymore, right? What if our, you know, American political leaders have, you know, become so frustrated with what's called burden sharing, again, whether or not nations are meeting that 2% target, that they're they're just sort of willing to say, you know, okay, we're done with it. You know, Europe has to be able to handle its own responsibilities. And that, by the way, um, it's an understandable point of view, just uh, particularly, we, you know, the U.S. has been um, complaining about burden sharing and, and whether or not the allies are spending enough for, for decades. So it's not a, it's not a new issue, but to focus on that, um, especially when it's not like, again, uh, allies aren't paying us for anything, um, is, is profoundly strategically short-sighted. We get well, a lot more out of NATO. <laughs> I was going to say the allies are paying us via our defense contractors and that this mm -hmm. alliance also includes a lot of perks for our own defense industry. Absolutely. Um, it also paves the way for greater transatlantic trade. Um, we are entering and or maybe we have entered an era of pretty profound geopolitical instability and what NATO helps do is cr is create a foundation for more security and stability for global trade relations. And when that gets disrupted, that becomes a problem for markets. Markets like stability. Keep going. But say I mean, more. Say more about that. Sorry, Kimberly. Say more about that. Right? Because mm -hmm. that's that's the nub of it. From from where I sit as the host of a program on business and economics. Right? Make the case that economically, these alliances matter. Sure. I mean, just look at um, things like the Black Sea Grain Initiative. You know, the, the war in Ukraine, uh, because of just the impact of, of the, on the prices of grain, sent economic shockwaves around the world, raised uh, prices of living, cost of living around the world. I mean, it wasn't necessarily um, an uh, immediately thought of outcome. The, uh, when, when, you, when you throw a stone in water, you're not sure where the ripples are going to go. But the, the instability has these larger ripple effects across the global economy. So when, when you think about things like the cost of grain, when you think about that kind of thing, it's easy to envision how that could impact the American consumer and increase um, cost of living prices here in the United States. And that's where, you know, NATO alliance membership or lack thereof is going to impact American pocketbooks. 
So given what Trump has said and this sort of concern among NATO allies, what are they doing over in Europe to sort of get ready for a potential second Trump administration? Hmm. They are, you know, charging for they're 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 investing in defense and they're thinking about, you know, what it will be like to work with an, an America that might be absent from the global stage. Um, it's but it, it's frankly, it is still, I would argue, hard for our allies and partners and even Americans to sort of wrap our brains around if Trump actually follows through on the things that he says that he would do or the, and the policy positions he says he would have. It is, we will be entering such a profoundly strategically different world that it's it's just hard to wrap our brains around like that that kind of universe. It's going to be more costly. And, you know, also, frankly, you know, when we think about problems like China, we need allies and partners to be able to work with us to counter China. Um, we won't have that set of the allies and partners the way we have had in the past if 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 those kinds of policies become enacted. But it's not just Trump, though, because, I mean, just look at what's happening with Ukraine funding. Granted, it's a lot of Republicans in Congress taking directions from Trump. But for all intents and purposes, we do have a lot of people sitting in Congress right now who are of the same mind. So even if Trump Mm -hmm. does not win election, some of this problem still exists. I think that's exactly right. And I think it's um, it's going to be a fact of life for our allies and partners to have to grapple with this kind of skepticism about American alliances and their utility. It's, um, you know, but going back to this question of 2% and whether or not allies are paying their fair share, it's it's one of the reasons that the argument around Congress has been happening is because of that concern that allies aren't paying their fair share. But actually, you know, some uh, CSIS colleagues and I have been doing some, some back and forth. If you actually open the aperture on what we mean when we talk about spending on national security, not just defense widgets and, and and those sorts of programs, the broader national security picture. You're actually talking about most, you know, I think it was 14 or 13 allies plus Sweden, um, it's not who's not yet a member, um, uh, spending 4% or more of their GDP on what we would call national security, and a further 11 spending 3% or more of their GDP on national security. So the, the picture is much more balanced when you when you look at the the um, the broader scope of, of what contributes to allied security. So much more to say and learn here, but thank you. You've made us very smart on this. Kathleen McInnes, a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thank you very much. Kathleen, thanks a lot. Thank you. Yeah, I don't think uh, people really understand. Let me rephrase that. People in this country don't understand what they get out of these alliances. And look, they can be messy sometimes, but mm-hmm. that that's why you get to travel freely. That's why you get cheap stuff at Costco. That's why you get French wines, and that's why you get you know, all this stuff. I mean, that's why it all works. It's always fascinating to me what arguments land in this regard, you know, because... The idea of wanting to protect our styles of governance, uh, democracy over authoritarian regimes, 
um, you know, human rights <laughs> versus mm-hmm. what we're mm-hmm. seeing mm-hmm. Russia doing, uh, that doesn't resonate in the same way often that these economic incentives do. Well, yeah. Yeah. Which re- reminds me of the early COVID conversations. We were like, please put on a mask. People are going to die. Please put on a mask. People are going to die. And then we were like, please put on a mask or our economy will be destroyed. Mm-hmm. That that worked a mm-hmm. little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. what yeah. were you going to say? No, that's, I got nothing else. Okay. Uh, well, let us know what you think about this conversation that we just had about NATO, about uh, what you think of what Trump had to say, and, you know, if you have any deep thoughts on our alliances more broadly, we'd love to hear about it. Our number is 508-827-6278. You can also call us at 508-UB-SMART. Again, it's the same number, but you get the idea. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. News is next on my rundown. Kimberly Adams, what do you got? Uh, I want to go second. You go first. All right, so mine actually fits right into what we were talking about with with Kathleen McGinnis, uh, sort of in a way. It's the defense industrial complex, uh, specifically in this mm. country, but, but you know, generally um, globally. Piece in the Wall Street Journal today about SpaceX and how that company is deepening its ties with U.S. intelligence and military agencies. That is the first line uh, of the sentence. Um, winning classified contracts uh, and expanding a, a new tippy-top secret uh, company satellite program with national security customers. So it's really interesting, and I have two thoughts. One is this is kind of what happens with the commercialization of space. This is the end result of the government saying, you know what, it's better to have private companies rather than a large government investment in a space program um, do this sort of stuff. So we have, you know, on a much smaller scale, Blue Origin and Virgin, and then the behemoth, of course, is SpaceX, and we've talked about SpaceX a lot. So mm. that's it's a natural extension. The, the challenge with SpaceX and with with truly all possible respect to Gwen Shotwell, who is the president of SpaceX, and and she's the one who actually sort of runs it day to day. It is it is under the control of a, a of a person who is not necessarily fully in control of his faculties. Elon Musk is a challenged, <laughs> challenged man in many many ways. And he has this incredible amount of influence on our national security establishment. We've talked about that before with Starlink in Crimea and Ukraine and now also in Israel and Gaza. It's really troubling that he's got this much sway in the national security establishment. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what else to say. And and it it all flows. It all You look at it and you're like, of course, that's the way it was going to go. But it's just in the hands of a guy who is, I don't even know what to say. I don't know what to say either. I got right. nothing else on that. I mean, I mean it's. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I'm, I'm, I, it's not one. always. It's not always clear that he's he's a good actor, you know. I mean, I think it's often clear that he's not yes. a good actor. Yes. Um, More power to you for saying that. Yes. <laughs> just yeah. The just yeah. If you look at what happened with Twitter right. and uh, also what he says, uh, that's that's pretty. Yeah. That's pretty clear. Yep. Um, right. So my news is actually tied to um, our show 
last Tuesday, and also I think we've got something coming up in the mailbag on this about money and love. Um, I and, and let me say money and relationships. The testimony in Fulton County, Georgia, with Fannie Willis, who has been in the district attorney, who's been investigating the election interference there. Um, the testimony that has been going on there about her relationship with one of the prosecutors that she hired has been so just unbelievably cringy to watch. And it's very clear that the uh, lawyers for, you know, the people she's prosecuting uh, are trying to discredit her, trying to get her off the case. They're alleging improper behavior and that she was trying to profit off of this, all, all sorts of other things that have been very widely reported. One of the things that has come up multiple times in these hearings is whether or not the fact that she relied so much on paying in cash was a sign of inappropriate behavior, that this was a sign that they were trying to do things sort of uh, in secret or under the table. And I want to point out two pieces, one in CNN and one in the Washington Post that really get into this. So the CNN story talks about uh, how she was at a winery and the person who was serving her at the winery remembers her paying for this this winery tasting in cash. And it was close to $400. And the person remembered this because it's unusual for people to pay in cash as opposed to a credit card. The Washington Post article talks about her dad and his testimony and how he instilled in her the value of always having cash. I bring up both of these stories because I hadn't quite realized that this was a very different conversation in the black community about women and cash. And it has always been instilled in me. And I know it's not just within the black community, but it seems to be um, more pervasive based on what I'm reading here and the way that it's being talked about in this case, that we are raised to be even more fastidious about having your own money especially in the context of a relationship, and for having cash. And this is the legacy, I think, of um, African Americans being unbanked or being treated some kind of way by the financial system. And let me bring up this quote. Uh, this is from Fannie Willis's father, who said that he was the, and this is from the Washington Post article, he said that he was the one who advised Willis to always carry cash and to keep six months of six months worth of cash always. Excuse me, Your Honor, I'm not trying to be racist, okay? But it's a black thing, Floyd said. He told a story about attempting to pay for his family's meal at a Cambridge, Massachusetts restaurant. Floyd was at Harvard on a fellowship, and Willis was three years old at the time, he recalled. The man would not take my American Express card, so I pulled out my Visa card, and he wouldn't take my Visa card. The same with his traveler's checks, but the $10 bill Floyd had, that was accepted. I'll never forget that as long as I live, Floyd said. Not only did Floyd keep three safes in his own home, he gifted his daughter her first cash box. When she testified, Willis said cash meant financial independence and security, values her father had taught her. The question of how money, the question of money and how it was used is significant in the misconduct allegations against Willis. And um, it goes on to say that they, because this is being used to highlight 
you know, whether or not this was improper. I know that was a lot, but this concept of who uses cash and how, I never imagined it would have this much weight. And it really has gotten me thinking about the different roles of cash in different communities. And I, I don't know. What do you think, Kai? Obviously, I can't speak to the to the black experience in this economy, but it yeah. makes total sense. I mean, just like, you know, as yeah, I'll, I'll get to that part in a minute. But you know, I just I just did a totally fascinating interview with a woman who'd written a book about the Freedmen's Bank back after the Civil War, and and we mm-hmm. traced she traced I asked the questions uh, how that has led to uh, Black Americans' mistrust of the banking system to this day. So I completely get it. Um, it was illuminating to me the degree to which. People watching this coverage and look, funny Willis on the stand, the, the only way to say it was she was a badass. She was not having <laughs> any of it, right? She, a, a man is not a plan. A man is a companion. I mean, all of that stuff, right? You, mm-hmm. you're, you're confused. You're trying to put me on trial. They're the ones on trial, right? I mean, she was, it was amazing to watch. It, it was cringy, as you said to to uh, see and hear some of the testimony about that relationship and all of that. And look, let's let's posit here that it was uh, bad judgment at, at best for them to have engaged in this relationship while they're in this high profile case. But on the use of cash specifically, it was amazing to me how many people watching this took that as uh, an uh, as a as a marker of guilt. Why would you be doing this mm. if you weren't guilty? Why are you using a cash economy if you didn't want it to be traced? And if you don't want it to be traced, well, then you got to be guilty. There's got to be something wrong here. And mm-hmm. clearly, there's a cultural divide here between the, I believe it's mostly white attorneys who are questioning both Wade and Fawny Willis and the fact mm-hmm. that both of them are black, right? I think that that really plays into it here. Um, and it was, mm-hmm. it was just, it was, um, uh, it was... Um, it, not inter- it was it was remarkable to watch the way people got bent out of shape about that without understanding history and Black Americans being unbanked. Yeah, it, it. I was. I mean, this is again. I love getting the physical copy of the Washington Post, which is how I stumbled mm. upon the story about Fannie Willis's father this morning. I didn't even realize it was a cultural thing within the Black community until. Mm. Um, until this, there's a very beautiful piece of work of art by um, the African-American artist Glenn Ligon, and it's a big door. And at the top, it says in stencil, it, this line from a Zora Neale Hurston um, novel or essay that says, I feel most colored when thrown against a stark white background. Yeah. And as the image progresses down this door, it gets blurrier and blurrier until at the bottom it's all black. This idea that you don't even notice your blackness until you're brought up in contrast with something that mm-hmm. makes you feel othered. Mm-hmm. And I had a bit of that moment this morning. I was like, oh, that's just us. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> and I mean, I imagine it's probably similar for immigrant communities as well, but I just thought it was super fascinating. Yeah, totally interesting. Totally. Yeah. Interesting. All right, that is it for news. Let's do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. All right, related but uh, different. We talked about money and love last week on the program and how couples navigate sharing their finances. Here's something we got. This is Beth calling from New York City. 
when I was dating, um, I would always pretty much pay my half of the check so that the men that I was dating didn't think I owed them anything. When I did get married, my grandmother urged me to always have some of my own money. Uh, when she was my age, she wouldn't have been able to have a bank account on her own. And when she and her husband divorced, it was terrible financially for her. She was always instilled in me that, you know, women need to look out for themselves because the world isn't always necessarily going to. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's a gender thing as well, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, one more. I recently talked about a lovely article about a man who rescues cats from trees for free, and a listener sent us this. Hey, Kai and Kimberly. It's Kazoo from San Francisco. Wondering if Kimberly is familiar with the Animal Planet show called Treetop Cat Rescue. It's a mm-hmm. show that follows around two tree trimmers who have a side hustle rescuing cats stuck in trees. Kai was wondering why cats got stuck in trees. These guys also pointed out that if you know what a cat claw looks like, they're slightly curved. Mm -hmm. So a cat has no problem getting up the tree. But when Uh... they try to come down the tree, the claws are the wrong shape and they'll fall out of the tree unless they come back down the tree backwards, which cats don't do. Never thought of that. I did not know about this show. I will have to check it out. (laughs) Thank you. All right, before we go, as we always do, we leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question. What is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? This week's answer comes to us from Nicole Stott, a former NASA astronaut and founder of a children's art nonprofit. It's called the Space for Art Foundation. Having worked for NASA for years, I knew that all of the work we're doing in space is off the Earth for the Earth. But Mm -hmm. it wasn't until I was an astronaut on my first mission to space that I discovered that I was wrong about those benefits being all about the science and technical stuff. Floating together with my international crew with that very special view of Earth out our space station windows, it was a stunning reality check of who and where we all are together in space. Our mission there wasn't just about the science and technical stuff. It was about the simple stuff, like the simple fact that we live on a planet, that we're all Earthlings. The significance of that simple stuff very quickly became crystal clear. Yep. It is the simple stuff, that's that's for sure. Totally. We uh, obviously want to hear your answer to the Make Me Smart question. Our number is 508-827-6278-508, the letters U-B-S-M-A-R-T. Dial them and see what happens. I actually don't know what happens when you dial that phone number. I should try it one day. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Charlton Thorpe with mixing by Gary O'Keefe. And our intern is Talia Menchaca. Daniel Ramirez and Ben Tolliday composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and on demand. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. 